Oh, this one was interesting. This is a one I want to touch on. And it says, if you decide to riot in my neighborhood, just remember sticks and stones may break my windows, but hollow points expand inside you. This is the new way to burn crosses on your yard. This um, is the modern day cross burning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and with even less opportunity for accountability because it's online. All right. So it says, it's a picture of Charles Manson and like a developing story. And it says, if CNN existed in 1967, police kidnap peaceful protesters. So in some sick, twisted way, they're comparing us to Charles Manson. That makes no only, sense. Only validating that they are completely unhinged and out of touch with reality and violent, what, all, what is always interesting to me is how they immediately go to violence in some way. Um, in this one, they can only compare us to, like, a murderer. Camille Bennett is reading violent messages on social media directed against her and other civil rights organizers. You see the world the way you are. If that's what you see, then that indicates some of what is inside of you. Violence. This is season two of Sounds Like Hate, a podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba. And I'm Jamila Paxima. We're examining where we come from, the history we accept as truth, and how sometimes our views influence the people we love towards violent extremist beliefs. This time we're looking at how parts of American history continue to be systematically erased for generations, and how black resistance to this erasure continues yesterday and today. This story is also about how the history of the American Civil War has been shaped by a pro-Confederate lens. We're reporting on the push to remove Confederate monuments and symbols of hate on public and government properties in Georgia, Texas, and Alabama. A warning to our listeners, this episode contains offensive and violent content. So I am standing outside. The sky is blue and cloudless. The birds are chirping. And in the background, can you hear that? Those are kids entering a daycare center here in Florence, Alabama. Social distancing in childcare is not possible. And we let our parents know that it's just not happening. And especially when you have small children, they, they're going to hug you. And that's just part of it. Hello. Camille Bennett is the founder and executive director of Project Say Something, a civil rights organization dedicated to eliminating systemic racism in Florence, Alabama, starting with the removal of a Confederate monument in front of the Lauderdale County Courthouse. Bennett also owns three child care and after-school centers with her husband. They care for 70 children ages 6 weeks to 12 years. Camille is being hugged by the kids as she walks through the daycare. What did you draw? You did. I've been teaching her how to draw stars. I keep on forgetting how to, 
I teach her how to draw them. You did a great job. <laughs> All right, it's time to change up. Hello, go back to your spots where you are. I want kitchen and library, library and color, color and bingo, bingo and sand, sand on the rug, rug in the kitchen. Thank you. Have the counter protesters done anything that made the parents worried about sending their kids to your daycare centers? They've shown up here. They stood there and just tried to stop my parents and say, don't bring your child to this child care center. And they probably lasted two minutes with my parents. My parents dressed them down, picked their children up and brought them back the next day. The harassment Bennett and members of Project Say Something have endured includes direct confrontation at protests, like this encounter with someone who threatened to spray mace in their eyes. Or this Ku Klux Klan counterchant. And the harassment continues beneath a virtual hood and robe on social media. Oh, goodness, here's Aunt Jemima. Project exposed them. It looks like Aunt Jemima with her middle finger up. My friends, that it. No more teasers. You see it at last. I don't, honestly, I don't know <laughs> what they're getting at. I don't even know I what that means. I can't make sense of it. Let's look at another one. They just go on and on. So many. Have you ever reported it to Facebook as a company? Yes, many times. And sometimes a person will be kicked off for a few days and then they'll come back as like another alias or something like that. We sent 10 screen grabs of these types of posts and comments to Facebook for a response. They said five of them violated their policies on violence, incitement and coordinating harm or hate speech. Facebook did not indicate if any action would be taken. They said without the links to each violating post or comment, quote, it would be difficult for us to locate the exact content share and remove violating content, end quote. The worst post I saw was someone who said they wanted to hang me at the courthouse and burn me. They said that. Or... One that said, I would not talk so much if they make sure that my mouth is wired shut and I can only drink through a straw. Like, those are the, the worst. As far as, like, physical violence. I've seen it done to us as Black women as a collective, and it's always been painful. And so to, to feel like I'm somehow a part of history in this really problematic way, and it's, I'm seeing it play out, I guess, in my own life, in this lifetime was very painful. And then watching my mother's reaction because she was, she's was she been very strong and very stoic throughout all of this. And she never tries to stop me and she's just supportive. But when she saw that, oh, she hit the roof. She was so angry, so angry. And the police have said there's nothing they can do about those threats. Nothing, nothing. I mean, there's nothing they have done about those threats. We've seen posts from someone in the sheriff's department 
and someone on the city police side. These are secret groups that they're a part of the secret group and made a post that was inappropriate. And you shared these posts with the appropriate representatives. And what happened? Nothing. Nothing. No investigation? Not to my knowledge. And when we continue to probe, the answer is always, well, you know, we're, we're, we're investigating this privately or there were these repercussions that we can't really talk about. Well, the issue of the threats, the elements are not there for prosecution on a threat because they haven't been directed at anyone specific. Sheriff Singleton is familiar with Camille's concerns, but little has been done to address the violent threats against her since by law, the threats must be specific and imminent to be illegal. It gets into a real fine line there but as far as First Amendment rights to free speech and hate speech and, and all these other things. Bennett is not waiting for local authorities to act or social media platforms to shut down this terrorizing behavior. She's doing what Black women have always done in the face of hate. She's refusing to be silenced. From Ida B. Wells's fearless anti-lynching campaign to Fannie Lou Hammer and the thousands of Black women who work hard registering voters in election after election, there is a long-documented tradition of Black women who have resisted racialized and gendered violence against them. This is what has always been done to us, right? We're seen as the opposite of the virtuous, white pure and innocent woman. So, so it's this, attack on your character. Absolutely, absolutely. And it makes sense womanhood. why. Yeah, it makes sense why. And it's, it again goes back to what they've seen. They've seen from society how Black women are depicted. But whenever I see comments like this, I try my best never to make it personal. Because it's not me. It's not they don't like Camille. It's they don't like any Black woman that, or Black man, that is actively resisting um, white supremacy, especially to black women. We are easily thrown aside. Um, so we're, we're, we're fighting patriarchy and we're fighting racism at the same time. Bennett is leading the resistance in her community against a national propaganda campaign that began back in the late 1800s with school curriculums feeding American children Confederate lies about black slaves being complicit indentured servants and lies that deny slavery was the central cause of the Civil War. These lies are on public display everywhere symbols are found, flags, street names, military bases, school names, paintings, and Confederate monuments. This was the central public space aside from a church. Christy Coleman is a historian and executive director of the Jamestown Settlement Yorktown Foundation in Williamsburg, Virginia. I do not believe that any Confederate statue should stand in front of a courthouse. It's intimidating. It was designed to be. Our history is fraught around all of these issues in the way that we choose to remember. And because there was such a concerted effort by Confederate sympathetic and ancestral groups to control what that narrative was, we still have to live with the residuals of it. And it's when you dissect and you really see what they did and the deliberateness of it 
from education to public space and all of that, we begin to see that maybe these things don't have the value we've approached to them. And I don't think you can divorce those things. The United Daughters of the Confederacy are largely responsible for creating a mass propaganda campaign about Confederate soldiers who failed at seceding from America. These white women funded a campaign that peaked between 1880 and 1920, mounting pro-Confederate symbols across the nation. Lies enshrined in concrete, bronze, and granite. They unified um, mourning, Southern Women's Mourning, when they consolidated all of their varying memorial associations into one organization. They took immediate control and action over the narrative of how their fathers, husbands, sons, brothers, uncles would be remembered. They kind of codified it right at the beginning of the 20th century. And then the third thing that they did was monument building. How did they raise all the money to do this? They did it in small ways and large. You know, working poor would feel a part of this thing that they could say that they gave a penny or two. They often did penny campaigns with children. But most of the money is through wielding um, political influence of them themselves or the political influence of their husbands to get legislatures to provide money and tax dollars for it, um, as well as raising monies from private philanthropy. They still are very active. Um, several chapters still give scholarships, host cotillions, do lecture series, uh, collect archives and materials. Some do still wield influence politically, and, and in some places, women who are members serve on state boards of education, particularly throughout the South. So they are they are not gone quietly into the night. I mean, they, they have the children of the Confederacy is where they work and do programming and the like for those under 18 to indoctrinate a whole new generation. Through the work of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, false romanticized memories of the Civil War were reinforced so successfully these lies persist today. They have chapters and divisions in 33 states and Washington, D.C., to comprehend the magnitude of the challenges Bennett faces, you need to understand the mindset she's up against. I am from Texas originally. I still have a Texas driver's license. This is Jordan Gospore. She is a producer on our team. For her, this story about Confederate propaganda is personal. Her family is one of those who embrace the argument they are only honoring their heritage. She grew up near New Braunfels in Comal County, Texas, hill country, about midway between San Antonio and Austin, an area where thousands of German immigrants settled starting in the 1840s before the Civil War. There's a pride in, you know, family members fought in every single American war situation. So one of the wars that they would have fought in would have been the Civil War. Her family knows little about the lives of the men who fought on the Confederate side. So Jordan decided to uncover their stories herself. And since she qualifies for membership with the United Daughters of the Confederacy, she decided to apply. I have no idea where this person was born, uh, who this person was at all. I mean, this, this muster roll index card that I found through the Texas 
database that you can look up your your ancestors who fought in the Confederacy. Can you read what it says? Yes. It says, name and rank, Dietert, comma, Fritz, comma, private, the abbreviation for private, PVT. Then enlist, February 13th, 1864, in Kerr County. He served February 13th, 1864. Discharge, the abbreviation for discharge, served eight days at $2, semicolon $16. So I don't know if maybe he enlisted and then he was hurt and got out or what happened to him, because eight days is not a very long time. Yeah, it's not a long time. You have three different relatives that you know of who were in the Civil War fighting on the side of the Confederacy. Yes, that is correct. So I had this inkling, you know, for years that I had Confederate soldier ancestors and that if I had proof, I would qualify to be able to apply for membership to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And this is an organization that I've heard other people in my community talk about being members of and not really saying anything negative about, but this organization still exists and, you know, pride in the South. I was very interested in why this still exists. Jordan's first interview was with her mother, Tamara Gospore, a schoolteacher. I'm curious, what do you think it means if we have a family member who served in the Confederacy? I just feel like anybody that fought, you know, in, in that war on the Confederate side, I feel like they were fighting for their their property and their family because we were pretty much being invaded. I certainly don't have any negative feelings, you know, toward them. If you're enjoying this programming, consider a gift of support to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the nonprofit organization behind the Sounds Like Hate podcasts. Now entering its 50th year of fighting hate and bigotry, the SBLC works in partnership with communities to end white supremacy by serving as a catalyst for racial justice in the South and beyond. Visit www.splcenter.org today and click the donate button to discover ways to support this and all its important work for justice and equity. The arguments defending white supremacy and Confederacy are endless. They were just protecting their property, or it wasn't about slavery. These arguments falsely reframe the original motivations for the Civil War. It's confirmation bias. People argue for what they want to believe and fit the past into their current political positions. Also, a little historical footnote, in Texas, German immigrants were divided. They fought on both sides of the Civil War. Some enlisted with the Confederacy, while others were pro-Union. The majority of the Germans who settled in Texas were anti-slavery. Historian Coleman says German immigrants settled in central and southern Texas. In 1862, 68 German immigrants who did not support slavery traveled to join the Union forces. They were attacked at their camp by Confederate soldiers at Nooses River in central Texas. You have a group of staunchly anti-slavery Germans 
who form their own militia to protect their interests, but they know that they're close to being overrun and overpowered, and so they try to get out, and they engage in full, you know, full military skirmish with Confederate forces. They're outnumbered, people die, and then they try to make their way on to Mexico. Nineteen men were massacred. This failed attempt to join the North ignited distrust against German Texans, which lasted decades beyond the Civil War. They had viewed the German community as a whole as suspicious, just as they had Mexicans that were within the Texas borders, despite the fact that those Mexicans and Spaniards and indigenous folks, the Tejanos, etc., had been on those lands for generations before it became Texas. There were local ordinances that prevented anti-slavery people from actually living there, forcing people to leave their homes if they were anti-slavery. Historical records reveal Jordan's family were among the Germans who arrived in Texas prior to the Civil War. Unlike her mother, she wants to know how they ended up on the Confederate side. And I want to see the numbers for Texas Germans who enlisted in the Confederacy before there was a draft imposed and how many were forced to enlist. I mean, I just want to get it straight that to your knowledge, our family, as far back as we can recall, have never owned slaves. As far as I know, I had never heard of anything like that. I think when they came over from Germany, they had very small portions of land. And then they worked it. A lot of them eventually got bigger portions, you know, would buy more land to where, yeah, my grandparents and great-grandparents, a lot of them had, you know, large, large amounts of property, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres. But that it definitely didn't start out that way. Whether white America acknowledges institutionalized racism, the ways they've benefited are endless. From the land granted to Confederate homesteaders in Texas, to the former slaves who continued their servitude as sharecroppers during Reconstruction, if you are white and American, you still benefit today from the advantages generated by the enslavement of millions of Africans starting over 400 years ago. They were both living there at one time as neighbors. Wilfred Lather volunteers as a historian at the Sofienberg Museum in New Braunfels, Texas. He's the author of a pro-Confederacy book. When Jordan contacted him for information, she discovered her relative, Frederick Goss, is connected to one of his Confederate ancestors by marriage. They joined the same Confederate company. They married sisters. And both of them apparently bought land from their father-in-law. Wow, okay. So Frederick Goss, he chose to enlist. He wasn't drafted? No, no, there wasn't a draft until later. These were the first units of the end of 1861, beginning of 1862. Those were all volunteer forces. Do we know if Frederick Goss was for secession, against secession? Well, I don't know what his individual vote was, but uh, in Kamau County, the uh, vote for secession was 280-something over, I think it was 
76 or something like that. So it was fairly overwhelming, like four to one. There's a Civil War monument on the main plaza in New Braunfels. On March 29, 1935, as a high school band played Dixie, it was dedicated to the dead of both North and South. About 1,400 people have signed a Change.org petition to remove the monument in New Braunfels. These monuments are propaganda. Leisha Brooks with the Southern Poverty Law Center says altogether they cost an estimated $40 million to preserve and maintain. So today, how many Confederate monuments and symbols are in public spaces in America? There remain about 1,800. It was really um, quite alarming to recognize that you know, these symbols of the Confederacy, these symbols of white supremacy are really littered across the entire country. So why do you think there is so much resistance to dismantling these monuments and symbols? Well, I mean, there's heavy investment in the lost cause narrative at this point. It, it comes to mesh ideologically with um, white nationalist narratives around white genocide or the great replacement. So some see it as a, kind of a, a replacement or erasure of um, white cultural heritage. They feel threatened by it. Pro-Confederacy historian Lather is an active member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Being a member of, of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and being a historian, how do you weigh the two? I'm not sure how to answer that other than <laughs> family ties make me do that. Like I said, I, I wrote that book and I did not harp on slavery. Frederick Goss, was he a slave owner? No. However, he was fighting alongside people who did own slaves. So I just am having a hard yeah. time sort of celebrating my ancestor and celebrating the men that fought alongside him when they included people who owned slaves, who owned humans. Yeah, well, in, in the unit that uh, our grandparents were in, I don't know of anyone there that owned slaves. Well, one thing you can say for it, a lot of the slaves were given instruction in Christianity, which they hadn't had before. Christianity was pro-slavery, from the gospel of saving eternal souls to theology defending violent oppression. Slaveholders used the Bible to justify enslaving Africans. Amazingly, Confederate supporters continue to use Christianity today to defend their beliefs. And why we should take the blame for having used slaves is really beyond me because it was part of the culture. Well, that operates off of the assumption that African peoples had no concept of God. And it also is quite arrogant in thinking that spiritual conversion is, is worth sublimation of a person's spirit. I think that's the most arrogant and horrible thing I've ever heard, but we've heard that ad nauseum for centuries. For centuries. 
isn't this a continuation of more racist tropes about saving souls of black folks? Absolutely. It, it's, it's really ironic given the fact that one of the largest, earliest, and, and most profound of the Christian churches actually was in Ethiopia, not in Europe. But yeah, it's a racist trope. Well, we gave them Christianity, we saved their souls, we took them from barbarism. And those are coming from the mouths of people who have no idea what African societies were like, have never ever seen or even bothered to see, and in some cases deliberately diverted people seeing the sophistication of the communities and the images of African city-states. Jordan, when you ask the question about whether or not your ancestors owned slaves, were you worried the answer was yes? I was worried the answer was yes. I was afraid that Schlother was going to make some sort of concession as to why our ancestor owned slaves or pass it off as not being a big deal. You also found out that your ancestors chose to join the military. They volunteered for the Confederate side. I was really hoping to find that this was not a choice, because when you hear about some of the other German Americans that chose not to participate in the Confederacy, actually left the area and tried to get out to go to Mexico and to other places to not have to join the Confederacy. And then you wonder, why didn't my relative do that? Why didn't they try to leave? Hello? Hi, Mackenzie. Hey, what's up? Jordan's next call was with her cousin Mackenzie Carley, who owns a t-shirt printing business. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what should happen to Confederate monuments. I think they should stay where they're at. That was part of our history. And if we forget our history, that's bad. You know, things happen. So why do you no longer wear the Confederate flag? I don't know. I just, I don't wear it anymore. The one t-shirt I had it on was like a Kevin Fowler band shirt. You know, it was not just the Confederate flag by itself. It was connected to something else, just like it's connected to like the Dukes of Hazzard generally. I don't have it in my house anymore because I'm an adult now. So I have my house, you know, tastefully decorated. I wear different things than I wore then. Yeah, 10 years ago, the kids at the high school that were wearing it, nobody said anything. I didn't say anything to them. People take it and perceive it however they want it or want to. Jordan's cousin and many Americans associate the popular rebel flag or Dixie flag with the Confederacy. These flags are designed to uphold myths about Southern heritage. You're a business owner. You don't wear the Confederate flag, you know, there seemed to have some sort of impact, like, you know, your customers, how they might perceive you, or, you know, you don't really want to have any, any sort of strange perception. No, because, you know, I know that I'm not racist. I know, you know, myself, but other people don't. And especially these days, if you say something wrong or, you know, wear something or, even wear your hair in braids. That is called now cultural appropriation. And for that reason, that may make someone mad and not like you and blow you up, you know, like on social media and stuff. 
right now, like on my store, like I make, if you want something from me, I'll make whatever you want, whatever it says. And you know, your money is green. If someone wants a Biden shirt, I'll make it for them. If someone wants a Trump shirt, I'll make it for them too. You know, it doesn't matter to me because everyone has a right to their own opinion. All right. Well, thank you, Mackenzie. I appreciate it. Yep. Hey, did you ever hear anything um, from the Daughters of the Confederacy? I have not heard anything from the Daughters of the Confederacy. Another common argument is the Civil War was about states' rights, but the specific states' right the Confederate Army fought for was the right to continue slavery. Growing up, what I heard repeatedly from family, friends, teachers, what I learned was Texas seceded from the Union because of states' rights, because of the right to own land and to prevent people from the North, from the Union, from stealing our land, our property. So when I read the Constitution of 1861 and I saw the number of sections devoted to the right to owning a human being, it shocked me. And you've never seen this before, this version of the Constitution. I had not seen the section that said slaves. Slaves, section one, two, three, onward through section 11. I, this is not what you learned in school. This is definitely not what I learned in school. There was no mention of slavery or slaves or the owning of another human being. For Jordan and many white Americans, the challenge is sometimes the people who accept lies about Confederate history without questioning it are close friends or even their own parents. Have you ever seen the Texas Constitution? I don't remember if I did. It was in college. I remember in Texas history class, they included a portion of the Constitution and they failed to include any portion that had any mention of slaves or slavery in it. There is a whole section, Article 8 on slaves, that they just completely failed to acknowledge in my Texas history class. Were you aware of this? Jordan, I don't know. I mean, when I was in college, that was 30 years ago, so. I mean, yeah, you were in college 30 years ago, but this was written in 1861. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm finding it, I'm finding it real hard and having a hard time with being lied to. Okay. There's 11 sections talking about slavery. Okay, but regardless, that still doesn't mean that every person that fought in the Civil War on the Confederate side, that that's the only reason that they were fighting or that that's even a reason that they were fighting. I still think you're oversimplifying everything. And how do you know how they felt? You don't. Well, it would so be- for you to oversimplify everything is just like anybody... That- the other idiots that do that, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot make it seem as if what happened 150 years ago is happening right now, that it's the, the, that this is happening to you. This didn't happen to you. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I did this project and wanted to do this 
was I wanted to research to learn about our family. Does it knowing the truth about this person, what we know, give us more humility and make us stronger? But what truth? I, again, I, I am proud that he had the guts and the just the honor to to you know fight for something that he believed in, which to me was just his family, his property, his new country, his new state, because he had just come here a few years before. I just feel like that. The education system in Texas, our family, that people in Texas, for the most part, are holding on to a just a warped history. Okay, like I said, then do something about it. It just is uh, getting under my skin. So are we done? Yes, we're done. Then finally, Jordan spoke to the registrar for the United Daughters of the Confederacy with the chapter in San Antonio. We have a really a lovely group of ladies. We're just very nice and pleasant, and I think you would enjoy them. And um, it's a lot of uh, genealogy. You know, they uh, look for their ancestors, and they get involved that way. And we also do a lot of um, civic outreach and uh, patriotism. Listening, you would think this is a harmless genealogy club for white women who lunch, but it's a group actively perpetuating lost cause lies and white supremacy. Why is the UDC still relevant today? You know, we do, you know, uh, patriotic uh, activities. We do benevolence activities. Uh, we do, uh, like I said, we have scholarships. We have, uh, that's a hard question. I don't know. We don't really focus on uh, political issues at all. That's just something we just don't, it's not, it's not our, our focus. This is not what we do. I also reached out to the United Daughters of the Confederacy to officially ask for an interview. So far, no one has responded. Jordan says it's been easy and difficult to separate her beliefs from the people she loves the most. She feels betrayed by her family and betrayed by the education system. But she's determined to help her mother recognize how this propaganda serves white supremacy in this country. I will keep reminding everyone, because I think if I completely shut down and stop talking about this, that is the opposite of what I was hoping to accomplish with this project. And my mother had mentioned to me, you say that you had been lied to through your public school schooling in Texas. Well, don't take it up with me take it up with the State Board of Education. And when my mother mentioned that, it was, wow, okay. You know, I actually can do something slightly bigger as well. I can put my name down remotely and still go to public forums with the State Board of Education. How do you proceed as a family? I mean, this divides some families. Yeah. And what I would say 
after learning about my Confederate ancestor is you always have a choice. You have control over your actions. And my Confederate ancestor made the choice to join the Confederacy. And what my family continues to do, they're making excuses for his decision that it was only around protecting his property. Obviously, I will never be able to meet my Confederate ancestor. And so what I can do is I can judge them by their actions. I would not make the same decisions as them. The reality is it's much easier to say I'm not a racist and be willfully committed to ignorance than it is to admit some of your ancestors may have owned slaves or fought on the Confederate side to benefit from the continuation of slavery. Civil rights activists like Camille Bennett put their jobs, safety, and lives on the line every time they speak out, even when the law enforcement they don't trust are sometimes the same authorities they rely on for protection. We asked Sheriff Singleton to describe Bennett. I like Camille, uh, of all people. You know, Camille has a, a story. Of all people, she and her family probably have an absolute right to feel the way they feel. Most people don't know that story. Uh, her sister was killed in a car wreck back in 2015, and a young man that was doing about 80 miles an hour ran a red light, had drugs in his system, that hit her and killed her, uh, was basically slapped on the wrist. He got, got a, convicted of a misdemeanor and spent 12 months in the county jail. You know, the jury's the one that made that decision. But, you know, I mean, to me, Camille has every right to feel the way she feels. How do you think that story is connected to the Confederate monument? Well, because the courthouse is supposed to be the place for justice. And that was the biggest miscarriage of justice I've seen in my 44-year career. I said, and I continue to say, that had the, had the roles been reversed, had it been a white woman that was struck killed by a young black man, there's no question in my mind the outcome would have been different. Bennett never mentioned her sister's death in any of our conversations. I had to ask her about it. Sheriff Singleton says... You and your family have a right to feel the way you feel about the monument because of what happened to your sister at the courthouse. Do you agree that there is a connection? And can you tell us about what happened in your own words? I do not have a sister. This is... (laughs) Hold on. Have you ever had a sister? I've never had a sister. You don't have a sister who died in a car accident that was hit by a drunk driver? No, that is not my sister. I think he's referring to Shirley Brannon. Um, That is a Black woman who was murdered via vehicular homicide. It was a gross injustice. But no, not my sister. So it is interesting the way he tries to frame it as some sort of like emotional instability within me. Like, there was a bad thing that happened, and now I come back with vengeance to take down a monument. 
which speaks to sexism and racism in some ways. It also speaks to the ignorance too that he is someone with power, a lot of power, who is elected. In a follow-up email, Sheriff Singleton explained he was obviously misinformed and understands Bennett is not related to the person he had in mind. Two months before the 2020 election, there was an incident that made it clear the threats expressed against Bennett on social media might be more than only words. I happened to be walking with two boys and we were walking together and a motorcycle came really, 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 really close to us. Lee Murky, an illustrator of children's books and board president of Project Say Something, was one of the witnesses. We started crossing over into downtown to do a silent protest. The light changed as they were crossing and immediately a man on a motorcycle just decided to blow through and he almost hit Camille Bennett and these small children. I jumped in front of the motorcycle, or I was kind of jumping in front because I was trying to get the kids back. We locked eyes. He looked like he wanted to hit us, but he couldn't. And as he was doing this, he yelled, F you, get the F out of the way, and drove off. I don't know what, what stopped him or if he was anticipating hitting us or what, but it was awful. My personality is such that in moments like that, I'm not gonna think about how I feel. There were children there, had to get them across the street. Um, Definitely not alarmed them because children are very sensitive. If you're heightened and freaking out, so are they. I gotta get them to mom. Did you report that to the police? Absolutely. And what happened? Nothing. They couldn't find the man that did it, um, but they weren't good about following up on like their process. I, I become very apathetic and very reluctant to keep going back to that same group, right? My expectations are very low. In part three of Monumental Problems, Camille Bennett takes her movement to the State House. How dare you step out of your place and present historical facts and ask for dignity. And the battle over Stone Mountain, the largest Confederate monument in the country. You know, Coca-Cola has been subsidizing or supporting directly uh, the memorial since 1925. To learn what you can do in your community or to see a full list of public symbols of Confederacy across the nation, visit the Southern Poverty Law Center's Who's Heritage Report. These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If you or anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authorities or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org report This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Sounds Like Hate is produced by Until 20 Productions. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. 
Remember, subscribe to receive new episodes as soon as they're released. Give us a rating and review too. It really helps. Thanks for listening.